You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is indeed a light unto our path. Jesus, please light us up this evening as we open it up, as we see your truth. Help us to see it clearly. Help us to understand it. Help us to walk in it. Help us to believe it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good evening, my name is Clint, one of the pastors here on staff. Most of you know, I think, that. Uh, if not, I'd love to get to know you after uh, the service this evening. Both Nathan and I will be up front and eager to meet you and help you get connected here at Christ Church. Um, if you're just joining us this evening for the first time, we've, we're in our seventh week in the book of John. 
as we seek to understand John's accounting of the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and what it means for this world. Um, If you haven't already, would you turn your Bible to chapter 3 of John's um, gospel? It's a fourth book in the New Testament, probably about three quarters of the way through your Bible there. I hope uh, everyone intends to join us next week where, Lord willing, we will baptize a new sister in Christ and uh, we'll welcome in several new covenant members of the church as well. Um, And then finally, I think we're appointing some pastors next week as well. That may be too much for one service. Nathan's going to be able to preach for like five minutes with all that we have going on or we'll just go into like eight o'clock. We'll figure it out. We'll figure out how to cram it all in. But if you're visiting with us, if you're a member, you'll for sure want to be there. And a reminder, too, to members that we have a members meeting tomorrow night where we um, sort of finalize and affirm those new members and um, actually do the appointing of those new elders. So members, you'll want to come tomorrow night at 630 here at St. John's uh, Cathedral. And visitors, you'll definitely want to come next week to further see and taste uh, the, the development of worship and community admission here at Christ Church um, that is only 54 weeks old this week. For now, let's focus our hearts and our minds on John chapter 3. Um, a few weeks ago, we heard uh, Jesus tell his first followers um, that he is the one who will grant them access to God. Remember, he referenced back to Jacob's ladder, uh, where Jacob saw uh, angels ascending and descending on a ladder. Jesus said, you're going to see that on me. I am the way to heaven. And then last week we saw that by turning water into wine, Jesus was inaugurating this new kingdom, this new messianic age of God's kingdom where the old rites of ceremonial cleansing were, would, would, would do no longer and his cleansing that would be offered through his life would only do for them. But we left off wondering, how? How do they get into this kingdom? How do we get into this kingdom? In fact, the last words in John 2 are these. In verse 24, if you see it there, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And we're going to talk quite a bit this evening about what is in man. But this leads right into our story this evening. And did you hear that? Jesus knows what is in man. Not just generally in and among mankind. He knows what every one of us thinks, what every one of us loves, what every one of us is motivated by, driven by, aiming for, he knows us. This is a shocking reality about the power of Jesus to see inside of us and how intimidating it must have been to have a conversation with such a man face to face, one who knows everything that is in you. And yet Nicodemus comes And he comes inquiring more about who exactly Jesus is. We're going to see three movements in in, in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. First, we're going to see because Jesus knows what is in man, he therefore knows um, what we need. And he's going to show Nicodemus what all of us need. And what he's going to show us is, number one, the need, our need for rebirth. He's also going to show him next what the results of rebirth are. 
And then finally, the evidence of rebirth. So the need for rebirth, the the result of rebirth, and the evidence of rebirth. So if you're here at church, which I think most of you are here this evening, stained glass or no, awesome acoustics or no, pew or no, pulpit or no, you are here with God's people. If you are here at church today, then I assume that you are longing for him, God himself. I assume you're longing for his presence. I assume you're longing for his, to be around his people, to, to feel his blessing. And that's what Nicodemus wanted. In fact, most if not all of the Jews in those days wanted God's presence. They wanted to be among his people. They wanted to feel his blessing. And yet, they were troubled because they were conquered. They were conquered people. Geopolitically conquered. They wanted to be with God in his place, with his blessing. But the problem was they had misdiagnosed the cause of their woes. They wanted liberation from the oppressive Roman Empire, the occupier, the abuser, the overtaxer, the ceremonial unclean, the, the, the Caesar-worshipping pagans. They wanted to get out from under their oppression. And their problem, at least for the most part, most of them felt was outside of them. It's a political problem, a geopolitical problem, and they needed geopolitical rescue, and that was tied to many of their messianic hopes and expectations. I'm guessing, too, in our own way, we feel oppressed by the situation we find ourselves in. If not geopolitically, we still feel like we want to taste God's love in a tangible way. We want to taste His presence in a tangible and real way in our lives, in a fresh way and in a forever way. We want to see his effects on our lives more, perhaps. We want to understand his rule. We want to understand his goodness more. We want to understand and know and believe in his rescuing love more. And we want it to impact our lives more, do we not? So Perhaps we don't have the same diagnosis as them, but we want God's kingdom. And Nicodemus comes asking about Jesus' identity. And Jesus knows that deep down what Nicodemus really needs is access to God's kingdom, his rule. And already in these first few chapters, Jesus has identified himself as the way, this Messiah, this way to God. But verse two in our text tonight says that Nicodemus came by night, which is is a loaded phrase, perhaps hiding his visitation from the other rulers who would much rather strangle Jesus than then interview him. But either way, this, this darkness of night definitely alludes to the darkness of unbelief that Nicodemus has and that he represents in the group he belongs to, the Pharisees, and in the group they represent, the Jewish people in those days. And Jesus knows what is in man. And Jesus is determined to expose what is in Nicodemus. Nicodemus is still in the dark about the true nature of God's kingdom and how a person can see it, understand it, participate in it, be in it. This darkness points back too to chapter 1 of John 
when we hear that Jesus is the one who came bringing light into darkness. Jesus is about to bring more light into darkness right here in his conversation with Nicodemus. And somehow Nicodemus is drawn to that light. We don't know how much he's drawn, at least in this text we don't see how far he gets into the light. We'll see later in John more about the results of this conversation and others. But he at least wants to know more about Jesus. So he comes and he asks. And speaking as that light of that truth and that life, Jesus tells Nicodemus exactly what he needs, exactly what we need. He essentially ignores Nicodemus' first question. And in verse 3, he just says, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus' darkened visit prompts this enlightening conversation for him. And though Jesus all but ignores Nicodemus' statement, he is speaking directly to Nicodemus and what he needs, saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He knows that Nicodemus wants to see the kingdom of God. He's a Pharisee, for goodness sake. He's a religious leader, for goodness sake. He wants God's kingdom to come. But he doesn't understand how. Nicodemus believed that he was already part of God's kingdom in some way because he was born a Jew. He was born into the people of Israel. Aren't I already in God's kingdom? Haven't we established God's kingdom, at least in some way, under this oppressive Roman? Yeah, we're ready. Let's rock and roll. Let's overtake them. Nicodemus is likely remembering uh, the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll, uh, I'll make your descendants. They'll be, they'll be able to, they won't even be able to be numbered more than all the stars of the sky. I'll bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Nicodemus believes he's born into God's rule, God's kingdom. And that he can already see it and know it by religious observance and by his ethnic inheritance. And even though you're likely not a Jew, and I'm definitely not Jew, it may be tempting to believe that just because we were born into a Christian home or a church-going home, that we've just kind of inherited our place in God's kingdom. And we've already seen what God's kingdom is about. Have we not? We grew up in this. And that's how we entered. We were born into it our first time, right? Jesus says no to Nicodemus. He says no to us. The first birth won't do. You you have to have another birth. You have to have a new birth. One from above, from God, a supernatural birth. Jesus looks right past Nicodemus' assumptions, right past our assumptions. He says we get into God's kingdom. Not by our first birth, not by our religious observances or habits, but by a new birth. And Nicodemus 
naturally stumbles over these words. What? Be born again? It's impossible to be born again. He even gets graphic about it. How may I re-enter my mother's womb and be born again? Which, by the way, exposes his whole posture towards religious righteousness, does it not? How can I get back inside and do that? Jesus says, this is how you see the kingdom. Automatically, Nicodemus thinks, how can I do that? That sounds impossible. And that is the point, is it not? This reveals where Nicodemus has put his faith, not in God's work to save a person, but in his own power to save himself, in his own ability to conform outwardly. He says that right there in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, Jesus, you're crazy. A man can't make himself get born again any more than a man can make himself be born the first time. It is impossible. And that is Jesus' point. Jesus loves to teach his people that salvation is absolutely implausible and impossible if it's based on the power that is within us, naturally, and in our own efforts to try and save ourselves. Yet Nicodemus, and, and too many of us, right? We Too many of us, we slip so naturally back into entry into God's kingdom and experience of it by our own works. How well did you do this week, mom? How well did you do this week, husband, daughter, son? How well did you do this week, Christian, are you here to make up for it? Are you here to add to it? Are you here to tout it? How well you did this week? Jesus says there is something new happening here. It's not your first birth into the old covenant, who your parents are, that makes you God's people. It's your second birth from above into this new covenant, this new promise, this new way of being saved. And how do we know he's talking about a new covenant here? It's this water and spirit language that Jesus mentions. Uh, in, in Ezekiel, we hear this exact wording and this anticipation the prophets had of, of Jesus coming and the Messiah coming and giving this new life through birth. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25, says, Ezekiel's quoting God, who says to the people, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is new birth. This is recreation language, inner spiritual rebirth language. What Jesus is about to inaugurate here what he's talking about with Nicodemus is a covenant of peace, a covenant of promise whereby people will finally, truly, spiritually be alive to God forever and ever. The Spirit will no longer, like it used to in the Old Testament, come upon certain priests or certain kings or certain leaders temporarily and then be removed. No, a new way by which Jesus is going to operate and his spirit is going to operate to save and indwell and be among his people 
and ultimately save his people. It's the same new covenant that Jeremiah looks forward to. He says it this way, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. No longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We need spiritual regeneration. We need Ezekiel's promises and Jeremiah's promises that were from God and to his people to to be real. And we need it to be true and we need it to hit us. We need spiritual regeneration. Remaking, spiritual regeneration. As pastor and rapper Shai Lin puts it, we need spiritual regeneration. It's the Holy Spirit's true work in his love to the elect who receive new birth from above. It's who we are. It's what we need. And it's a paradox, is it not? It's a paradox that will not fit in Nicodemus's merit box and it will not fit in your merit box or my Merit box. And if this is true, then all that Nicodemus has spent his life trusting in is his own birth as an Israelite, his own efforts and of obedience in the outward law, they are all worthless for seeing God's kingdom truly and in an eternal and saving way. If you're a Christian, then the Spirit has already hit you and given you this new birth. The Spirit has already given you this new life. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you want to know, you want to understand who God is, what it's like to sit and live under His rule and be saved by Him, then you need to be born again. Christian, you did not invite the Spirit to come live in you. You did not coerce it to come and live in you. You did not manipulate God into saving and giving you new birth. He invited you. He manipulated you. He coerced you right out of darkness into the light by this new birth. A non-Christian, or as I like to call you, not yet Christian, if you want it, it may actually be a sign that you already have it. If you're longing for this new birth we're talking about, you may already have it. And we want to talk with you about that. We want to sort that out with you in community. So come and talk with us. So we've seen our, our need uh, for, for spiritual birth, but, but the need for this spiritual birth points and only makes sense if we are truly spiritually dead in the first place. Why new life if the old life was just fine how it was? This reality of spiritual deadness is throughout the scriptures. I'm just going to read off a few different places in scripture that teaches how dead spiritually we are before we're given this new life. God says directly in, in Genesis 8 that the intentions of a human's heart are evil from our youth. And the psalmists say that we are conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity, estranged from the womb from God. And we've gone astray from birth. And Paul In Romans 8 and Colossians 1, our minds are set on the flesh and hostile to God, not submitting to God's law. Indeed, unable, unable 
to please God in our flesh. That which is of flesh gives birth to flesh. And this is what we're born into. The inability to please God. The darkened heart, the hostile mind. Unable to submit to God's law. In Colossians, he says, in our sin, we're alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Finally, Jesus, later in this very gospel account, John 6 and 8, Jesus will talk about how in our flesh we are slaves to sin and corruption and that no one can come to him. No one is able to come to Jesus unless the Father who sent him draws him. This is that spiritual birth that he's talking about here for Nicodemus. This is the spiritual birth you have, Christian, if you have it. This is the spiritual birth you need, not yet, Christian, if you don't yet have it. This is the spiritual need, the the birth that so many of our friends and family and neighbors and so many people among the nations need. And therefore we go and preach the gospel to them. Because every one of us is born in spiritual darkness, disabled completely with regard to good and with regard to God. And we must get this. We must get how dark and deep sin is and how deadly it is, both in our nature, before becoming Christians, and forever, forever in hell if we never become a Christian. Nicodemus, Rome is not your biggest problem. The problem is not outside of you, Nicodemus. It's inside of you. Guys, The problem's not outside of us. It's inside of us. Which is why the solution must come from outside of us. Inside of us. Paul summarizes this reality in Ephesians 2, which we saw in our our assurance of pardon this, this evening. Ephesians 2. We were dead in the trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Nicodemus must not quite get how deadly sin is. If he did, perhaps he'd be more readily open to this idea of needing to be born again from above. We've got to ask ourselves too, do we believe that sin in our heart and the sinfulness that we have by nature, the way we were born the first time, is bad enough to make us spiritually dead? Is the depth of our problem of sin real? If if we understand the depth, then we will understand more and more the height of of the love of God and his grace to come and save us, will we not? To undo this deadness. How great his love was. How great his salvation. We didn't deserve it. If all these words we just read through in the Old and New Testament about our spiritual deadness are true, we're outright treasonous rebels. And yet he loved us. He so loved us that he sent his son. I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to not believe my sinfulness is this bad. Because I usually just compare it to other people's. And I'm like, mine's not that bad. Theirs is bad. And Nicodemus and his pharisaical brothers, they were really, really good at that. We've got to take our eyes off of other people, put them on our 
our God who is perfectly holy. And the, and, the, and the more we understand his holiness and greatness, the more we see how dark we actually were. And the more we cherish our new birth, and, and hopefully, if you haven't been, the more you long for that new birth. Is this not the very problem that Ezekiel and Jeremiah were addressing? Our sin needs a solution. And this spiritual rebirth is the solution. Only then can our sins be remembered no more, as Ezekiel promised. Only then can we truly be forgiven and cleansed, as Jeremiah reminded us. Let's move on to verse 6 here. Jesus contrasts the spiritual birth in human beings versus uh, in, in the first birth with this second birth. Verse 6, for that which is born of flesh is a flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, animals give birth to animals, elephants to elephants, cats to cats. Uh, elephants don't give birth to cats. That would be really weird. Um, but all humans, all humans who are in Adam, dead in our trespasses, we don't give birth naturally to people who are spiritually alive. Even if we've been made alive through a new spiritual birth, we don't give birth to those who are spiritually alive. Spiritual life and birth has to come from above. It is not natural. It is supernatural. Now, before we go on, it's worth putting in parentheses here. Is it even worth or, 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 or worth being thankful for? And is there a benefit to having Christian parents? Absolutely there is. It's a blessing to be born into a family that takes you to church. It's a blessing to be born into a family that opens up the Bible for you, that teaches you to read it and love it and cherish the truths from it. Absolutely. But Christian parents, you can't give them the second birth they need. Perhaps you gave them the first birth they needed, but you can't give them the second birth. Only God can give them that birth by his sovereign power and love. And so we pray for it. Perhaps you've heard this from uh, Nathan in the past. I heard it from Nathan for the first time, but uh, a pastor in Dallas, Matt Chandler at the village, uh, he, he, he says that the goal of parenting should be to pile as much kindling as we can around our children. We take them to church every week. We read the Bible to them. We talk about the scriptures. We, we talk about sin, our own sin, their sin. We pile it up. We pray for them incessantly. But all of this is just kindling. We can't light the fire. We do all this hoping that God might one day toss an eternal spark in there and it'll go up in glorious flames and passion for him in new birth. Can he ignite some with very little kindling? Yes, many of us in this room were ignited with very little kindling. And can he also not ignite some who are up to their noses in kindling? Yes, he cannot light them. Jesus is saying that bodies give birth to new bodies. Mommy bodies and daddy bodies make baby bodies. But there's another birth that comes only from the Spirit because it is spiritual.
And this is the Holy Spirit of God himself. Just like how we've been born this first time from a man and a woman in which we had no power or decisive role in it. That's how our spiritual birth is too. We have no power to make it happen. We have no decisive role in it either. Only a responsive role. And this is mysterious. But Jesus tries to help Nicodemus understand this and this mysterious work of the Spirit with this illustration about, about the wind and its effects as it moves and hits this or that and you see it and you hear it. How do you know the wind is blowing? Well, you can hear it. You can, you can hear it hitting the building. You can, you can see its effects as it hits the tree. You can see the flag waving away. And yet, without sophisticated in- instrumentation, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. The Spirit is very mysterious in how He works. But this is how He works. And there are results of Him working this way. If you look out and see the leaves moving away on the tree, you don't just think, ooh, very talented leaves we have here in Albuquerque. No, you, you think the wind moved through there. Yeah, you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it went. And so we saw our need for rebirth. Now we see the results of rebirth. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that, of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus is not heavenly. He is earthly. His focus is on what he knows and that which he is able to do under his own natural power. He hasn't lived in heaven before. He hasn't lived in eternity past with the Holy Father and in his presence as the Holy Son like Jesus has. Jesus is the expert. And he's saying no one has the authority to speak of such things in an absolutely true and believable and trustworthy way like I do. Because I was there. Now I'm here. I'm going back there. I'm from there. I know how to get there. This is how. As confused as you may be, Nicodemus, you better believe what I say, Jesus is saying. What's this weird thing about the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness, verse 14? Jesus is referring to a a story from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, chapter 21, when the Israelites, having recently been freed from Egyptian slavery, are now wandering in the wilderness. And you know what? They don't really like it anymore. They're super stoked when they left Egypt and how thankful for being saved they were and free and liberated and rescued, and yet they don't like the circumstances they find themselves in. So they begin to wildly accuse God of evil. You brought us out here to die, didn't you? They begin to worship all kinds of false gods, not the least of which themselves. All this in direct rebellion against God's command for them and love for them that he's already displayed. 
It's as if they're saying, you don't love us, God. You don't care about us. You're not wise. You're not powerful. You're not good. How can we trust in you? These are all direct assaults on what he has already proven himself to be for them. What he's already proven himself to be for us. So, in, in, in reply, God does what any sensible Almighty might do. He sends a plague of venomous snakes into the camp as judgment. And people are being bit left and right. People are dying left and right. And once the people recognize that it's their sin and rebellion, and it's serious enough that it's causing rampant death, they turn They realize they do need God. And now they need him to save them, not from Egypt, but from him and his judgment and curse. And they ask Moses, their mediator at the time, to cry out to God for salvation. And and God, as he is perfect at doing, makes a way for his people to be saved. He saves his people. As long as they turn to him and they look his way. God tells Moses to make this really weird bronze serpent, this symbol of judgment and curse, both in this specific story and throughout the rest of the Bible. And he says, put that bronze thing on a pole. People are to fix their eyes on this symbol of curse. And don't let your gaze be distracted by all the death and sin and curse around you. Look up at this one and I'll take it away from you. Jesus says, how do you know you've been born from above? How does this whole birth from above thing make sense? Well, just like when the Israelites were in the wilderness looking up at the bronze serpent, which was God's way of salvation from the death that came from their sin, Jesus says, when they look at me, whoever believes in me may have eternal life. In other words, whoever looks at me when I'm lifted up, on the cursed pole, then you'll know they are those who have been born again. They are those who see the kingdom of heaven. The sin caused by, or the, the, the death caused by our sin is infinitely worse than the death caused by this venomous serpents. And the salvation won for us on the cursed tree of the cross is infinitely more valuable than the salvation of antidote, the venomous antidote that they got by looking at a bronze snake. Bronze snakes can't save forever from sin. Jesus can. He did. He died. He was sent. And now we live for him. Are you tempted to look at your circumstances around you like the Israelites in the wilderness and go, this is really crappy. Like, life is hard and my sin is making a mess of my marriage or my parenting. And Their sin is making it even worse of a mess. Are your eyes fixed on that? Or are your eyes fixed on the cross? Are your eyes fixed on the sign of curse and judgment as your way to be saved from the mess and to be transformed inside the mess? Have you justified anger or lust or greed or impatience or any other form of self-worship this week, which are all idolatry because of stressful or discouraging circumstances around you? 
Our sin deserves a poisonous, painful death. But if you've been reborn, then hopefully your focus has been shifted. In fact, this is the result of being reborn. Your focus shifts away from what you're seeing and believing and living and toward Jesus, if you've been hit by the wind, hit by the Spirit, then like the leaves you see moving in your front yard, your focus has been moved from self. The leaves are moved by the wind. Our focus is moved away from us onto Jesus. I think this is catchy. Others, Patrick Gozier, think this is corny. But hopefully it'll be a helpful way to remember that a focused and fixed belief on Christ for salvation does not lead to rebirth, but is the result of rebirth. Look at verse 15, or the end of 15. And listen to it like this. (laughs) Whoever be like the leaves in him may have eternal life. If the wind hits leaves and you know where it's been by what they do, and and really this week, by all of them all over the ground, you see the evidence of the wind. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. But for those who believe, those who be like the leaves, we know they've been hit by the wind. We know if someone believes, they've been hit by the Holy Spirit. What is the evidence of new birth? It's belief. It's the belief that the rest of this chapter is about. It's the belief that next week's baptism is about. It's the belief that next week's affirmation of new Christians, I mean Christians, new members, is about. When Jesus' word is taught and Jesus' spirit moves in people's hearts, they turn from sinful rebellion against him and put their trust in him. It is mysterious, but it is also clear that it has happened. So Jesus shows us our need for rebirth. He shows us the results of new birth, namely belief. And in this last section, really quickly, from verse 16 on, we see the ongoing evidence of rebirth. So John 3, 16 through the end, or through, through 21. For God so loved the world, this is how he loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever, be like the leaves, in him, you're never gonna read that the same, are you? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out, not in self, but in God. So, the evidence that we see of our new belief, our new birth, are these, very quickly. Number one, 
we have eternal life. First Peter 1, 3, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. This is exactly what John is saying here as he quotes Jesus. New birth needs to, leads to belief and belief to eternal life in God's kingdom. So first, we have eternal life. Second, we have love for people. John writes later in his short letter, 1 John chapter 4, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Evidences of true birth, loving people because we've been loved by God. Third, we love Jesus and therefore we love righteousness and practice it more and more. 1 John 2, 29. It's the same motif of new birth evidencing itself in our lives. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Are you here to get your religious fix this week? Or are you here to build deeper relationships with God and his people and then go and practice righteousness to get better at righteousness? Not so you'll be born again, but because you've already been born again. Don't love the darkness, love the light. Step out into the light. Let's do this more and more in our gospel communities, people. Let's do this more and more in our discipleship groups as we ask each other how we are struggling to obey. Let's practice we won't be perfect this side of heaven, but we can practice and we can get better because of our love for Jesus. Fourth and finally, we begin to hate sin more and more. Same book, 1 John 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This doesn't mean that we're going to stop sinning the day we are reborn. No, but it does mean that we can't go on doing it and loving it and practicing it and getting better at it and hiding it. If we've been saved from slavery to sin and from all the hints of condemnation that come along with it, then we ought to be eager to confess sinfulness. We ought to be eager to reject the reign of that sin in our lives. And we ought to be eager to walk in the newness of life together. This is a process, people. And we're in this process together. So we want to ask God for help in this process. Let's do that now. Father, this is amazing love. Amazing grace, unfailing love that you would take our place, that you would send Jesus, that you would in such a way love a world that was unlovable and in utter rebellion against you. What amazing grace, what unfailing love. Thank you that Jesus has been our Savior and is our Savior and will be our Savior forever. Help us, we pray, to trust in him. Help us, we pray, to live out our new birth in faith. Help us to produce the evidence often, not just for evidence's sake, but for genuine encouragement among God's people here, among your people. Help us, we pray, to evidence 
our rebirth through loving one another, through loving righteousness, through hating sin all the more by coming out of the darkness. And for those, God, who haven't yet come out of the darkness of unbelief, bring them out, God. For those of us who are pretending to live in the light and not really living in the light, bring us out. Help us to live in it. Help us to live in light of your love and life and eternal life that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.